Chapter 1 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Reverend John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 1 Seeing Darkly. For now we see through a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. By way of illustration, a parallel is here run between childhood and manhood, putting the one in apposition to our natural life in this world, and the other to typify a higher life, a life to come. This is an apt figure. Manhood is the period of the broadest development of our powers, and hence fitly stands for the immortal vigor and luxuriant pulse of a future and ideal state of being, whereas childhood is a preparatory, unpracticed, unripe stage of the human creature, during which he is only getting ready to live, storing up materials for use in succeeding years. For it has pleased his Maker to lead man, who is yet the masterpiece of creative skill, upon the stage of action in an unpromising plight, a child. He begins with unconsciousness and helplessness, and comes slowly to moral sentiments and intelligence. He begins with instinct and ignorance, and learns little by little the rudiments of knowledge and how to carry himself in the world. The astronomer who predicts eclipses and transits of Venus and lays off infinity had once to learn that two and two make four. Only by this road could he reach the higher calculus. The surgeon who dissects the fibers and demonstrates the human anatomy once spelt out with incredible difficulty the little monosyllable man. We begin with balls, whips, tops, and end with systems, creeds, philosophies, and theologies. And Paul here hints that even these are only bigger balls and more ambitious kites. At any rate, his reference is evidently to the notorious order of development among our faculties. Quote, when I was a child, I spake as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Unquote. In other words, the subjects which interest a child and the mental processes of childhood are different from those of adult age. At the earlier period, mind is just dawning, learning to think, organize, compare, and has not attained to abstract ideas and finalities. Now, according to this fine analogy, man, living under the present order of things, is in his minority, will not become an adult of age, and be graduated until he has entered a higher state of being. Paul means to say that the questions which now occupy attention, the cares which vex and harass the whole web of mortal life, is, relatively, a childish affair. Like the rattles and straws, the Noah's Ark and mimic soldiers, which one discards when he buckles on the harness of life. Our pragmatical, pompous little world, according to this apostolic figure, is a wide nursery of infants in swaddling bands, learning to balance themselves, to carry themselves, to express themselves in the simplest syllables. The human spirit is cased and confined, at present, within narrow limits, can receive only oblique and straggling glimpses of higher certitudes. Man cannot look with open face and steady vision upon those full-orbed suns, but only sees them obscured and overcast. Hence the inadequacy and unsatisfactoriness of current religious knowledge. That unseen firmament where God dwells and works and divine tendencies rise and fall like the tides is not directly accessible. 
we are apprised of it indirectly. Now we see in a mirror darkly, imperfectly, obscurely. We read that the ancients, before the mechanic arts were advanced and perfected, used in their windows thin plates of horn or isinglass or some translucent material through which objects could be recognized in a general, indefinite way. Their mirrors also were metallic and gave a blurred and vague outline, revealing the face, form, figure, but nothing clean and clear. And this is the homely analog by which Paul, comparing great things with small, sets forth our mortal apprehension of God, and the sphere of angel and archangel and the whole spiritual economy. He says that living in this envelope of flesh, in this opaque and frosty air, beset by infirmities, perplexities, doubts, men do not get more than a fugitive, occasional glimpse of the great worlds of nature and grace, the wide kingdom of eternity with its tremendous machinery, its mighty invisible forces and laws, its thrones and principalities and orders of nobility, its priests and paladins and kings and elders, and all its processions and histories. These eternal reals we sense very imperfectly, do not see them in their naked realism, by reason of our feeble grasp, our fleshliness and sensuous crude organization. We look at the things of God and at the ultimate ground of being through a dim mirror and do not see the supernatural distinctly. Confessedly, this is an apt description of our case and of the posture of the human mind in relation to the highest topics of thought. It is certainly true that moral and religious ideas are part of man's outfit. We have them. We ponder them. We turn them over in reflection. Once in a while they flood the soul and ride high on the shore and submerge the low flats of our ordinary life and make the world look mean in the presence of their majesty. It is a stupendous truth that man can think about God and eternity, about the endlessness of knowledge and the beauty of holiness and the sovereignty of love and the ceaseless progression of the soul in all the higher elements of personality. Thinking upon these, one does not feel that he deals in fairy tales, in Arabian stories of enchanted palaces and impossible combinations. There is no sense of contradiction, grotesqueness, or absurdity cleaving to these supernal ideas. There may be a vein of superstition running through human nature, but if so, it is a reflection of something deeper, of a strong and silent undertow that sets out toward unseen kingdoms of miracle and wonder. All questions ultimately become religious questions if carried to their logical limits. So this rhetorical figure of Paul's is highly descriptive and forcible. This present, he argues, is the alphabet of universal knowledge, the childhood of immortality, the lowest form, the primer. Man, busied with manifold work, elaborating his philosophies, exploring nature, building bridges, founding cities, trying his experiments and rearing his civilizations, using his practical intellect and letting his idealizing, imaginative intellect and his aesthetic reason fly abroad and mount the heavens, is only beginning to try his infantile powers, and all that he ascertains, discovers, demonstrates is only hint, flash, shadow of immense, unutterable, enduring substances out of sight. Thus men cannot give an adequate and satisfying definition of God, his mode of being, occupations, enjoyments. So soon as they attempt it, directly they are plunged into contradictions. Likewise in regard to the spiritual body, how it is equipped, its actions and passions, its ascensions and errands and immortal energies, 
this too is seen only through a dim mirror. The everlasting future also, who shall compass such a thought and fill it up with histories, experiences, vicissitudes, work? The bare idea of endless, conscious existence staggers us, strikes us dumb, casts us into suspense and silence. It is too vast, voluminous a thought to handle at our present stage. We think again of angels and archangels, of seraphs and the hierarchies of moral intelligence that rise tier above tier through the boundless dominions of God. M. Angelo, Raphael, Titian have depicted them with glistening wings and with glorias circling their heads, but we know little or nothing of the avocations, uses, ambitions, enjoyments of unseen and mortal creatures. We believe there are such, that there is no finer clay in the universe than man, no higher organism, no erect, stalwart, lofty being compared to whom Plato would look like an infant, and the music of Mendelssohn sound like the preparatory scrapings and guttural hubbub of a discordant rehearsal, this, indeed, is not likely. Beyond us there surely are creatures more powerful, alert, sagacious, than we. Again, touching the future of the world and the progress of our species, we see in a mirror darkly. That there is a far-off goal toward which mankind slowly moves, and that one coming New Year day there shall be a clanging of bells and a clashing of cymbals and a chorus of hallelujahs proclaiming a kingdom of heaven upon earth, compared to which all that went before and all previous celebrations shall be like penny candles and penny trumpets, toward such a civilization and settlement all truly good men and women look forward. It is the burden of Hebrew prophecy, an age of harvest and of vintage, that shall gather up into itself all the power and glory of preceding ages, and be their grand, climacteric, and burning focus and fulfillment. But when and how this gorgeous horizon of purple and gold will unroll itself, what shall be the form and fashion of that time, its worship, creeds, laws, work? Concerning this, we see darkly. Men preach and pray about the millennium, a kingdom of righteousness and love, pillared and domed, and set upon sure foundations on the earth. But when we come to particulars, the vision recedes, melts, dissolves into generalities. We see through a glass, obscurely. This is the fate that cleaves to all human imaginations touching the future and the unseen. We speculate upon the vast possible addition which would be made to man's information and capacity if, instead of five organic senses, he had six, seven, or ten. Unquestionably, a creature supplied with seven senses would have openings into the universe which we have not, and avenues of knowledge not available by us. Compared to such an one, man mayhap would stand in much the same relative position as a mole or dark burrowing animal stands to him. Yet in relation to the invisible firmaments and kingdoms that arch over us, man is like one who lacks the sixth sense, the appropriate organ, the prehensile grasp or has it only in a rudimentary, ungrown form. There are phases of truth that only flicker on the horizon's brim. We know enough of them for practical purposes of reverence and obedience, but nothing at all commensurate with their amplitude and grandeur. Even the few sublime secrets that God has divulged through the Bible and in conscience, none of them probably appear to us, looking upon them from our shore, as they appear to higher and more powerful intelligences and as they shall appear to man himself, 
when he has been armored with his sixth or seventh sense, and stands amid the stupendous developments and dawning visions of eternity. For then he shall see upon many sides that polygon which now he sees only upon one or two of its sides. Yea, verily, now we see through a mirror darkly. Nevertheless, we see, says Paul. We see something. We have hold of reality by the fringes, by the hem and skirts. Quote, we know in part, quote, but, quote, we know, unquote. Quote, we see dimly, unquote, but, quote, we see, unquote. Those conceptions which have risen upon the human mind touching God and the invisible are authentic and true. We may build upon them, we may take them for granted. Those religious definitions and ideas that have worked themselves clear from the mud and silt of superstitious accretion, and that commend themselves to the moral instincts and sober reason of the best part of mankind, these may be said to be known for all practical ends. We know, albeit in part, we see, even though it be darkly. Unless earth, time, life is one stupendous delusion, a swirling eddy of aimless atoms, then it is certain that so far as the few great religious truths go, which have been revealed to man, they are real, reliable, substantial, worthy of all acceptation. Respecting them, we stand much where the astronomer does in the matter of the stars. He sets his telescope for Jupiter, Saturn, Sirius, and reports that he has found them. There they are, he says, each with its atmosphere and physical constitution, its day and night, revolutions, seasons, temperature, and chemistry. But when I push inquiry and ask him, are they inhabited? Have they parliaments and congresses, Catholics and Protestants? Do they favor a king or a president? Have they a pope and politicians? Is there what we call a civilization on those mighty orbs? Do they found colonies and send out fleets? Are there philanthropies and humanities there? Do they use our logic and multiplication table? Tell me about their customs, creeds, social usages. The astronomer answers, I know nothing of all this. I do not even know that those flaming worlds that cross my glass have any tenantry at all. They could not be of our human build and make in any case. I know only in part. I see through a glass darkly. But I see... I see enough to satisfy me that they are prodigious revolving globes supported by that same force of gravity which holds our earth ball together and keeps it going. What I do know about the sidereal heavens is absolutely and mathematically certain for me. So, similarly, it fares with those transcendental ideas and deep, mysterious presentiments that stir sensibility in man and excite wonder and hope. There is a hemisphere of them, lying in shadow, in the night, and another hemisphere wheeling through the gray, misty dawn, and hence visible. True, I cannot adjust the foreknowledge of God with the moral liberty of man, but I see enough to know that there is an adjustment, a point of intersection, an eventual harmony. I cannot comprehend the mystery of the Incarnation or the person of the Christ. I cannot conceive the condition of disembodied spirits. I know nothing about heaven and hell, these and other high themes immediately present antinomies and contradictions in thought. Nevertheless, I see enough to convince me that there is something there, if only the human brain were big enough and the vision of mortal man keen enough to take it all in. As well might a caterpillar crawling leisurely over one arc of a great circle think of expounding that geometrical figure 
as I the immensity of God and His universe. The poor, dark worm would have to crawl for ages, past kingdoms of fish, bird, mammal, clear up to the mathematical man, before it would find out that, quote, a circle is a figure generated by the rotation of a line, one end of which is stationary, unquote. While this analogy between man and the caterpillar is by no means exact, since man has a born faculty and affinity for moral truth and religious ideas, there is yet this much force in it, that we mortal men are creeping along one single radius or segment of a circle that sweeps through all firmaments, its center everywhere, its circumference nowhere. Consequently, it happens that one says, quote, I am a Calvinist, unquote. Another, quote, I am a pantheist, unquote. Another, quote, I am a deist, unquote. Another, quote, I am an agnostic, unquote. They stand at varying points of this huge circle, flinging its radii into space. Some see farther, some not so far, some not beyond their nose, but none see all, and all see darkly. The unity of God's design, the glory of His idea, the end of His creation, the fulfillment of prophecy, the consummation of this experiment of man on the earth, these immense horizons and unutterable things we apprehend, we know about them, but it is a partial, fragmentary knowledge, like broad, round, red suns on glowing axles. They wheel across our object glass. We see them, but not on all sides, not perfectly, not adequately, not as they are. Now, in view of this disability, the practical concern for every man is to see to it that the mass of his ignorance and doubt does not cast any prejudice or injurious reflection upon what he feels must be true, what he is bound as a moral, responsible, religious being to believe and to practice. It is not likely that the everlasting future will impugn our fundamental beliefs. The rim of that vast wheel that revolves out of sight is surely rounded into perfect symmetry with that section of it which you see. All real truths are consistent. If you believe you have hold of one or more of them, you can safely steer by it. It will not wreck you. It will not deceive or mock you in the great hereafter. There are finalities. There are views of God, of sin, of redemption, of character, of destiny, which, instead of being swept away, doubtless will be enlarged and confirmed in the progress of the soul. I read that there are rivers on the globe that are fickle and treacherous and apt suddenly to change their channel, so that in time of flood the farmer may see their mighty waters strike a new pathway across his timberland and cotton field and swallow up his possessions. But there need be no fear that the current of divine purpose, by any sudden rise or turn, will wipe out and overwhelm those first principles and fast landmarks which are established in the best and most serious thinking of men upon supernatural things. We see darkly and dimly, nevertheless we see. Let us hold firmly by what we are sure of, and that commends itself to our reason and conscience. The Christian centuries and all the centuries have been at work digging, boring, blasting, smelting, trying to separate the slag from the ore, that which ought to be believed and done from that which is false, mischievous, or useless. The workmen all see in part, and prophesy in part, the stones are quarried and dressed gradually, and lie here and there, and only the master builder, in whose thought lives the archetype and plan of a perfect universe, can put them together in symmetry and order. Augustine works out his scheme, and Pelagius takes a divergent direction. 
Athanasius and Arius cannot agree, nor can Luther and Tetzel, nor Calvin and Socinus. Each of them says, quote, This is the truth for me. This is what the make of my mind constrains me to believe. Unquote. They all see in part and through a dim mirror, but doubtless some more accurately than others. The same is true in regard to the providential leading of the world and God's treatment of man. This also is a section of human experience that awaits the rising of the curtain and needs to be illuminated. Sir Henry Bessemer discovered a means of rapidly converting iron into steel by blowing a blast of air through the iron when in a state of fusion, by which the production of steel was enormously increased. So, too, the hard, dull iron of man's earthly history is, one day, to have a blast of air poured over it, the breath of the Almighty, whereby it will be converted into something quite different, and by a far better than Bessemer process. We can only dimly conjecture, at present, the meaning of sin, sorrow, pain, but the point which Paul presses is that these are parts of a larger whole, and that the higher unity will be grasped when man has reached a higher level. And here he is our spokesman, and voices the universal feeling. We do not quite see whither God is leading the world and the race. The years multiply, centuries rise and set. Meantime, what it all means, what is the inner logic of events, what the revolutions, changes, drifting of society signify, what they are ripening into, what will come next, this is not immediately apparent. The involutions are obscure, the intricacies are complicated. All is yet fragmentary, inorganic, vapory, unfinished. Nevertheless, we see in part, and that part will dilate toward greater amplitude and perfectness. Hold fast to what you see. Quote, cast not away your confidence, unquote. This is the error of men. They say, quote, there is so much we cannot understand, we will not take any of it, unquote. But this is a mistake. The kingdom of heaven is as a mustard seed. Do not despise the little you know and see. It is an installment of still better things. Seize upon it act upon it, live by it. Oh, yes, the world is multitudinous, immense, but it is only a part. The earth is beautiful, but it is only a hint. Nature is gorgeous, tender, solemn and gay by turns, and full of suggestion, but nature is a symbol. There is much, too, in human society that is hopeful and of high augury. Civilization, culture, refinement, humanity are constantly rising higher on the shore and leaving a watermark where none had been before. The divine purpose for man is slowly filling up its vast orb. We may discern the general drift and direction. Some points have been gained in the long conflict of ages, yet what we see is only a part. New years come, but the new creation still tarries. Paradise is not yet regained. As you look out upon the world, in this early hour of the twentieth century, you see an unfinished edifice. You see the foundations and floors of a mighty building, you hear the broken, jangling rehearsal of a coming symphony. Whenever you espy a man who is trying to repent, to believe, to pray, to aspire, to live under the power of the world to come, he is a white blossom of the coming spring. Whenever you cherish a high resolve, a devotional mood, a spiritual affection, whenever you do an unselfish deed, it is the symptom and rudiment of the new constitution and order that is to be. Whenever you hear of any effort to lift society, to put down evil, to propagate the gospel, to bring in the precepts and spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and to organize and operate them, it is a part of the plan, 
a segment of the circle of divine purpose. We see in part, we see darkly and through a dim mirror, and cannot foretell accurately unto what the swelling seeds and tender shoots and dawning possibilities of which the world is full will grow and what forms and flowering they will take on. Moreover, this our ignorance and dubiety is not a real disadvantage if we only act upon such knowledge and probability as we have. This is all that God requires. It is the hallmark of greatness and not a defect that the Bible does not tell everything, that the Christian revelation is not an exhaustive account and full explanation of all that men want to know about the unseen universe. Any school, church, sect, seer, or prophet that arises and claims by an inspired ecstasy or by a psychological penetration or a special permit to tell mankind more than the Bible tells about God and the future life directly arouses suspicion. We do not need to know more. We know enough already for practical purposes. It was not intended that we should see otherwise than through a dim mirror and darkly. Any new doctrine, interpretation, vision that purports to chase away the thick fog that sits upon the farther shore and to let in the light, and so to improve upon the Christian gospel, is prima facie a suspicious phenomenon. It is possible for one to tell you so much that you believe not a word of what he has said. He has overdone his part. The same is true in religion. The silences, the omissions of the Bible, its moderation and balance and self-restraint, this is part of its grandeur, part of its credibility, part of its case. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Unquote. And again, quote, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Unquote. Oh, yes, the things the Bible does not tell, the secrets it does not reveal, its reserves, its reticence. How significant and weighty! Jesus awoke his friend, Lazarus, from a mysterious slumber. But no evangelist reports the man's subsequent conversations with his sisters, Mary and Martha. We should like to have had them printed large in the New Testament, certainly if he said anything to the purpose. The silences of Holy Scripture, how effective they are. Now we see through a glass, darkly. It was so intended. Any school, apostle, or doctrine that rises up in the world and says, Quote, come to me, I will tell you about God and heavens and hells and angels and the disembodied and the dead, about the millennium and the battle of Armageddon and the man of sin and the time of the second advent. I will draw the curtain and show you things to come. Unquote. I merely say that was not Christ's method. On the contrary, he said so little, was so vague and meager, that all Christendom wishes he had said much more. But he knew where to stop. He was perfectly poised and sane. There is a voluminous gospel in what he does not say, as in what he does. Evermore it remains true that we see darkly. It is necessary. It is part of our education. We do not require to know much just yet. A little here goes a long way. I do not need to know the metaphysical nature of God, or about the state and occupations of the dead, or about the destiny of the heathen, or how many shall be saved, or how long the world is to last under present arrangements, and when the great historic drama of our planet will enter upon another act, or what rising hierarchies of angels there are, and what they look like, and what they do, and how they subsist, all this is irrelevant to my condition. 
We see darkly, but we see enough. We feel that there must be reality behind these appearances, that behind the universe must be a mind that made it, behind time must be eternity, behind the carnal kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of eternal love that shall one day replace them, behind man's soul with its hankerings and hungers and thirsts and clamors, a God who can satisfy them, behind all the sin of the world, a salvation from it. Oh, yes, we see something of the eternal realities. We see their majestic shadows as they sweep by and the long train of light that follows in their wake. We hear the boom of a deep, mystical, solemn sea out of sight. And it is a great, inestimable thing to know even a little as we do and to see through a mirror darkly. Hold on by that little. Add to your faith knowledge. Whatever religious truth or spiritual hope you have grasped, let it not slip. See to it that the years as they pass and as they come increase your faith and do not diminish it. Enlarge and enrich your nature and do not impair and impoverish it. For you should know more and see more clearly as time lapses. And as your pilgrim feet pass the milestone and approach the dark portal of eternity, not less but more is what you want. More life, more light, more certainty, more joy, more vision. It is a great thing for a man to live. For, properly conducted, life means the bursting of bubbles, the snapping of rinds and bands, the collapse of quackeries and illusions, the falling of scales from the eyes, the sloughing off of old skins and shells, and getting out of the grub state, and moving on into light, and taking hold of reality and of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Try to see ever clearer, even though through a glass, darkly. End of chapter 1